Hi, I'm Khaled Keefe-Perry. And I'm Christina Keefe-Perry. And this show is On Carrying a Concern. Stories of Friends in Service. This week, I sat down with Gretchen Baker-Smith, who shared her experience of an overwhelmingly clear call that was laid on her entire life and how she has spent many years continuing to live into that call, one experiment at a time. To provide some context for folks who don't know, Gretchen is the junior high and junior yearly meeting coordinator in New England Yearly Meeting. And she has worked with youth in that role as a staff person beginning as early as the the late 80s. And she has been at home working with the youth in the yearly meeting for such a long time that sometimes it's the case that she now is working with the children of youth that she was first working with in the early 90s, which is a source of joy for her and her work as she feels called to be a spiritual nurturer of children, teens, and the adults that surround them. This is a great episode for thinking about the ways in which people can carry a concern for public ministry, but not feel called to formal traditional style of traveling ministry is often associated with vocal ministry and uh, the gospel ministry. So what does it mean to be a public friend, but have it look different than maybe it would have in ye olde days? It's also a great episode on the importance of community and the ways that our community shows up to help us to name and shape our ministry. If you are new to the show, know that this is a long thing, and that's fine. It's broken up by music in each segment. If you want to, you can listen just to a segment and know that that theme is tied together. Transcripts of all the show are available on ocacshow.org under episodes. And along with those transcripts come questions for reflection, which we encourage you to use both individually and in small groups, and links to additional resources for things that come up in the show. So please check that out if you're looking for additional content tied into the stuff we talk about. We would love to hear from you if you're finding it useful or not, or if you've got a question or a challenge or something that you think is problematic in the work that we're doing here. We'd love to hear from you um, and hope to connect for whenever it is that folks want to weigh in one way or the other. And now let's hear from Gretchen. The first question that we ask everyone is, how did you come to the Religious Society of Friends? Hmm. Hmm. It came via my husband, Buddy. So he grew up as a friend at a Delphi meeting in Maryland. Oh, in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And um, we met at, at BU in college. And very early on, I, I think we'd only been gone out a month. And he took me to Cambridge meeting. I'd grown up as a Catholic. My family's very Catholic. Um, and by the end of that worship, I knew I was in big trouble. I started to cry because it was mass. It was communion without all the stuff that I was struggling with. And it was such a big deal for me to leave um, both my family's fold and this Catholic church, you know. But it was pretty immediate. So we had a Catholic Quaker wedding 
and Ben and Katie, we straddled the most radical left-wing church in Boston. We could find Catholic Church for a couple of years, and then we moved south, and I became a member of Westport Meeting. And it, it was that apparent in that first meeting for worship that the point, the point of worship or the culmination of worship was communion? Yeah, it was very intuitive to me. Um, and I, I don't, it took me a little while to be able to verbalize that, but that sense of being in the presence of God and everyone joining in that was very much there. And I mean, and I was very, I was very Catholic. I mean, I, looked at, um, I sent away for mail to various orders of nuns, including cloistered ones when I was in high school. Um, I had a tambourine in sixth grade so I could be part of the folk mass group. Like, who does that? Um, and, uh, but there was a, all of the things that by the time I was in college that I was struggling with from the male hierarchy to the wealth of the clothing to, I mean, just so many things. Mm -hmm. I was sitting doing everything that was the most important to me and none of that was a problem. Mm. So how did you, how did you, break it to your family this <laughs> shift in your yeah that was hard um uh it was a it was a slow one and it, I mean it was a slow one for me too um the piece about it was about three years between when buddy before buddy and I got married so there was a fair amount of time to casually kind of say I'm going to meeting mm -hmm. um, or you know talk about what was going on somewhere we didn't really have we bounced between Beacon Hill and Cambridge here in college we like you know didn't really have a meeting but um, when we got married we uh, had we held our ground and it was something that in Dartmouth people still shake their head about that it actually happened. But we, we, it was really important to us that, um, a clearness committee from a Delphi meeting came up, um, and we had a facing bench on the altar in the church and we had a, a wedding certificate. Um, and we had 22 minutes of silent worship with people who stood up in the church. Um, that priest had a really hard time letting us do it and kept saying no, no, no. And my dad went over one night and sat down and talked to this priest. Who knows what they said other than that. He did tell us that he said that we were too 
people who were trying so hard to live out their lives, you know, faithfully with God, if anybody he knew, and couldn't there be a way to make this work? And things moved. And so I think holding the ground for all of that mm-hmm. made it better. Mm-hmm. It's always been hard for my mom that our youngest is not baptized. That's mm-hmm. a really hard piece for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that over all of these years, they have appreciated how it has worked. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I have this funny, there's a way now that, I mean, my dad for years has always called me the visiting minister. And I would say grace at meals all the time. Um, and uh, and so it's kind of a puzzle, but they kind of get it. <laughs> that I think it's hard that there's a, it, it, for some of my siblings, mm-hmm. there isn't a formal faith community that works for them. Mm. And... And, and I think that's hard for my mom because of how much the faith community has always fed her. Mm-hmm. And so you want that for your kids. Right. Um, and it sounds like there's some way in which at least your dad, maybe mm-hmm. your mom too, acknowledges that you are, you have taken up a vocation of ministry. Oh, absolutely. And there are times when my mom has actually, a couple of different times when she has like almost pushed me out to say a prayer at a couple of funerals with Catholic priests who weren't super happy with me doing that. But she would say, you need to, you need to, you need to speak Gretchen. Yeah. So no, she totally, she's very supportive. There's some things, you know, there's some things that are just a puzzle, like the fact that either we're all ministers or they're none, depending on what she's looking at. You know, there are just a lot of things about the structure that are a puzzle, but I think she really does deeply. I think all my relatives do. It was not a place that any of them, I don't think there's another Quaker anywhere in, in the vicinity of our clan. Mm-hmm. I'm just grateful to Buddy. So, so you came in college mm-hmm. and uh, stuck around, mm-hmm. straddled both mm-hmm. the Quaker and Catholic world, mm-hmm. and um, moved into a, a deepening mm-hmm. of just with the Religious Society of Friends when you moved after college or? Yep, after, yeah, we Ben was a year, and Katie was, Ben was just, actually, Ben was just two, and Katie was six months, and uh, we sent Buddy out into basically Sandwich Quarter looking for a meeting, and he went off every Sunday. He would go to a different meeting, and... He came back from Westport and said, I found it. And, um, yeah, it was quite instantaneous at that point. There were people like Gene Kennison, 
um, and Ruth Howland and just people who were completely invested in supporting families with young children. And so when it was kind of that Mecca years of youth at Westport meeting, mm. so um, they had a group that remains very connected. Yeah. Why have you stuck around in the Religious Society of Friends? I love that question. Yeah. <laughs> because it so works for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The worship is still so much works. People who are trying to live so intentionally mm-hmm. and faithfully are really wonderful people. I have such respect for so many individual friends that I have gotten to know over the years. Um, this thing about trying to live all of your life faithfully mm-hmm. is just so touching. And the whole concept of that of God in us and how we are trying to live out faithfully, um, those leadings and nudges and, and all of that so resonates with me um, and has so given me a form and a structure to understand my own experience. Okay, so let me just start off by saying I love that young adult Gretchen Baker-Smith. Oh, she wouldn't have been married then. No, not yet. Gretchen, ooh, is she Baker or Smith? Do we know? Baker? I think it's Baker. I like that young adult Gretchen Baker walks in a meeting for the first time. We should apologize if we, in the event that we've got it wrong. So let's imagine it's Baker. Okay. And if we're wrong, sorry, Gretchen, or Buddy, or both. We're sorry to the both of you that we yes. don't know your maiden name. Um, had this intuitive understanding that I believe the quote is, uh, it was the part I liked most, communion without all the other stuff. Right. Um, and she does say, you know, it took her some years to be able to articulate that. Um, but I think that that's really fairly incredible. Uh, and what's interesting is that's one of the key insights in terms of the elements, uh, the, the, the bread, the actual physical bread and the physical wine and the way the early friends understood that. Can we do a quick early cut to the Barclays apology? Sure. But I just want to add, she didn't just say communion. She said it was the Catholic mass with communion she she got that the pieces of the mass too okay so i think earlier and earlier every episode we should cut to barkley so that until we get to the last episode we just read the apology that's it i'm kidding i'm kidding everybody that would be a very long episode don't worry everybody so this section is called 
The Supper of the Lord is not limited to the breaking of bread and drinking of wine. And it is from the 13th proposition uh, in the Apology. Thus, the Supper of the Lord and eating with him and partaking of his flesh and blood is by no means limited to the ceremony of breaking bread and drinking wine at certain times. It is truly and really enjoyed as often as the soul withdraws into the light of the Lord and feels and partakes of that divine life by which the inward man is nourished. This may be witnessed at any time by the faithful, although it is especially so when they are assembled together to wait upon the Lord. That's it? That's it. And Gretchen Baker and or Smith uh, got that as a however old person walking in for the first time with her husband-to-be. And I think that that's a really great uh, example of the ways that you don't need to read Barclay's Apology uh, in modern English or otherwise to know that, right? We, we should come to, if we're doing what we're doing the way we say we are, you should be able to, in fact, come to that understanding prior to needing some theory. You you just experience it. Right, right. And, and the, the for my part, the, the reason to kind of be excited about it and and care about things like Barclay's apology is because we could say maybe maybe in fact our experience isn't really all that different from the things that started this thing off a few hundred years ago that we actually are part of that same living tradition same experience um, the fancier words sometimes but like that power and that understanding it, it traces through from back to the southern of England to to the present in uh, Cambridge. Cambridge. That's neat. It is neat. And I think that it's notable that she shares that her Catholicism was something that was very dear to her, that she was, you know, she took up a guitar so that she could be part of the folk mass. Um, and that she was quite versed in all that that stuff with all the quotes around it. So she was well prepared to perceive the the similarities between the two. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't sound she was particularly negatively oriented towards the Roman Catholic Church. No, just just aware that there wasn't a place in it for her. In ministry. Right. Well, and, and of course, you named that there are lay ministers uh, within the Catholic Church. Right. Certainly. Um, and, and she wasn't happy with the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but not, you know, n not put off by the, the liturgy of it or yeah. the theology. Yeah, and I also um, just it's it's worth pointing out in terms of the fact that so many friends, um, at least in North America, uh, aren't raised in the tradition, but kind of become convinced and enter the tradition. The ways in which that can be really challenging, um, and she mentions how hard it is for her her mother that right. her children are not her youngest is baptized not baptized yeah. in the church and um i was thinking around the fact that to this day we don't know whether or not it's a joke or not but that my maternal grandmother says that um when i had just been brought home from the hospital um one of the times when my mom was taking a nap and my grandma was there to like watch after me she kidnapped me 
and brought me to a Catholic church and had me baptized. Seriously? And they joke about it, but my, my mom doesn't know whether or not she really did it or not. It wasn't really kidnapping, right? It was just like taking me down the block. Right. But that it wasn't with my parents' permission. I wasn't raised in the church, but my grandma was worried about what would happen if I wasn't baptized. And so she took me away and had me baptized. Right. right. And I mean, I don't think it matters one way or the other, but I think there there is this fear. And the, the point of saying that is to say, I think... I think as friends come into the Religious Society of Friends, if they're really going to kind of live into the fullness of it, a lot of times it gets very disconcerting for family and friends who have different traditions or no traditions because the Religious Society of Friends is so different in its format, its leadership, its pay, its demands on you, um, the amount that you can volunteer in it. And while I think a lot of those things can be true for any denomination, there are some particularities that emerge with the Religious Society of Friends that make it even more kind of incomprehensible to some folks, um, including the lack of the physical elements in in most. I also really like the way that even though she left the Catholic Church that her family was so much a part of, she returned to the geography where her family lives and uh both of her parents recognize that she's a minister to the point where I love this story where she says, my mom has pushed me out at funerals and said, Gretchen, you have to say a prayer here. And, and uh, that she recognizes the gift that her daughter carries. Yeah. And I think that's actually maybe both more accurate and more important. Not that they recognize that she's a minister in some kind of formal way, but that they recognize there's a giftedness and they have experienced the ways in which she has something to offer. Yeah. I think that's, I don't, I don't know if, if her mom would say she's Gretchen, you know, do you know that your daughter Gretchen is a minister? But clearly the experience of her mother is such that she knows that. And, and in some ways I think mm, a lot of people that we've heard interviews with, some of the people on the show and also the other episodes we listened to or did that we, you know, we that weren't selected, that's really what it's about. Not so much whether or not someone calls them a minister with an M or not, but whether people recognize that there's a giftedness that they're carrying that's of service to the community. That seems to be far more important. That's right. Not that there isn't importance in naming in general, right. but, but that really the, the emotional connection is, I see you, your service. And that that gift can be of service to the commu- whatever community she happens to be in. Mm-hmm. It's not just reserved for her her actions and, and presence in the Religious Society of Friends if she's at a funeral with her family, which presumably is not going to be a Quaker event. Yeah. That gift shines. Yeah. And I think that just points out how important it is um, for us to have discernment as part of our practices so that we can know, because it isn't just limited to a certain time when we may be called to be of service vocally or otherwise. We need to constantly be testing, figuring out kind of what is right and, and what is just uh, kind of a random passing thought. Right. phrase leadings and nudges Mm -hmm. have you experienced leadings and nudges yeah (laughs) how how might you define them and and what is the experience of of 
of having them. Uh Uh-huh. Well... So my... My one big moment of the still small voice Mm -hmm. is in the library at UMass Dartmouth. I was gone off to get certified in elementary ed because Buddy had found a way for me to do that. Um, And we thought that it would be a way for me to work with children and have summers off and, you know, so I was in the library doing a assignment on language arts curriculum or something. And all of a sudden there's this laughter and then this voice that said, when are you coming to work for me? <gasps> and I looked up, there's nobody around. And I, I just knew, I knew who it was and I knew what it was about because all those times before, you know, the like, do I become a nun? Do I, all these other times before I had been like, yeah, 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 yeah. Trying to figure out how to straddle things, how to straddle this deep, this like awareness of the sacred that I think I've always just been blessed to have doses of. And, um, and so that when was terrifying to me because I knew it wasn't like, will you come and work for me? It's when, mm-hmm. and all these other times had been like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to figure it out. And I knew I could keep saying no, but this God was going to keep coming back. Mm-hmm. And so I just started, but there was so much love. You know, it wasn't this like, it wasn't this like on high, it wasn't anger. It was just this, you know, this kind of like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> So I started to cry and I didn't tell anybody for about it for a couple of weeks because I was like, this is going to so, I don't even know. Because it wasn't like I got a roadmap. I got this one question. Right. Um, it took a long time to figure it out. Some of the people that I admire the most and learn the most from who are friends are these people who are incredibly gracious and bend easily and listen and faithfully follow Mm. very calmly. I'm like constantly the Isaiah in the wilderness struggling and wrestling with God. It's like, and very publicly, I think I'm, I catch those nudges and then I argue with them Mm. then I try and find a way out that's more convenient or that works better and so especially early on there were these really messy things I think over time I've gotten better at at that bowing and letting go sooner Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm 
because you kind of go, oh, this isn't <laughs> this isn't going away. Like we can do this now or in three months. <laughs> you said that you um, <clears throat> didn't tell anyone in two weeks mm-hmm. for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Who did you tell? Did you turn to folks in your meeting and ask, mm-hmm. like, seek sort of like a formal or informal? clearness process or or was it just turning to someone to say can I tell you about this thing well I had already started working JYM retreats quite regularly with Kevin Lee who was court coordinator right and and he's also from our meeting Mm -hmm. he and his wife for a long time friends of buddies of mine their kids babysat our kids anyway and so Kevin and Buddy were the people that I told first. And Buddy's response was to just be so puzzled, kind of blindsided, like this was not our plan. And, you know, at one point he said to me, I, I didn't think I was getting married in a triangle, you know, that there was God in me and him. And, and, and I didn't have, uh, an answer to, so what are you doing and what are you going to do and what's the solution and how are you going to, you know, are you always going to juggle three and four part-time jobs in and around the kids? And and, and I didn't have an answer to any of those. Mm-hmm. Kevin's response is the friend and friend could be to put it in context and go, you're in trouble. <laughs> and you need... <clears throat> A clearness committee. Mm-hmm. And um, so over the years, there were various people that were put together. Um, I went through the School of the Spirit program. Um, I was one of the earlier classes. Beyond being a spiritual nurturer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and spent a weekend um, at Woman Hill really early on too for people who with emerging ministries that monthly meetings had named people and called them out and you had to um, write a letter of support and sent us all off to Woman Hill. That's where I met Karen Sprague and Tom Antonick, both. Uh, and, and that next semester, so I finished that semester in elementary ed, and the next semester I went back, but I took one less class, and I took a class at Andover Newton in the philosophy of religious education. 
it completely knocked my socks off. <laughs> and it was just this confirmation of like, oh, this is it. This mm -hmm. is it. Mm -hmm. Huh. And they tried to get me, you know, to enroll in their MDiv program. And it just didn't, I wasn't convinced that, it was not clear at all that that's what I should do. And getting a master's in religious education just seemed like, as a Quaker, it was like, why am I going to do that? But that, that experience at Andover was really also helpful for me to just say, oh, oh yeah, there it is. Um, so that by the end of that semester, I withdrew from the elementary ed program. Mm -hmm. And then tried to, over time, just work things out, you know, just um, try and leave space for how that ministry might unfold, what that would look like. Mm -hmm. And so then all my part-time jobs got focused around both my not focused, but they had to work around not just my kids' schedule, but then this being available for ministry. What does that look like? How do you, did you have criteria or for what the part-time jobs were, or you knew that, like, you couldn't work on weekends, or? Yeah. Well, I have... My resume of part-time jobs those years is just really, it's, it's a real cross-section. I mean, it's everything from confirming doctor's appointments. Jeremy was really young those years. He would, like, literally be dancing as a two-year-old on the table while I was saying, hi, this is Dr. Blubbity Blubbity, and I'm confirming your appointment for 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I did things, there were things that I, I was a... Like the office manager, production manager for a video production company that did really high-end television news work. <laughs> and I started out doing their bookkeeping. And then when they got too successful, got them to hire a real financial person and then uh, yeah, did production coordinating and... And that was funny because we didn't even have a TV. <laughs> so. so really what you do is, is you're ordering your life. Yes. In a way. Yeah. So that you can be as available as possible. Yeah. So that's really what we did. And, and people would know that. And so then they would start saying, you know, Gretchen, I need somebody to organize this. Can you come help me three hours a week? And I would go do that. So I've worked for union organizers and so this is work, work stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we just kind of just kept all of that going, you know, had one car, the kids and I used the new Bedford bus system more than anybody else in new Bedford and made it work and just were able to just say, we just have to see how this plays out. You know, in retrospect, it seems like it was 
it's such a clean story, but mm. it was really hard mm. for Buddy and I to figure it out. We look back on those years with both of us wishing that if we could do it again, what we would do differently, but we just didn't know. Mm-hmm. What do you think you would do differently? I think I would have, I was so afraid of having, of acting wrong, of of having it be watered down from what my experience was of this call. Mm -hmm. That there's a lot of things that times when I was afraid of Buddy's suggestions. And so I was more less trusting and more pushback with him, which only then made him feel more outside. Mm-hmm. And his was, and for his perspective, he would say that he never been this close to somebody and neither had I, who had this really strong sense of call. Right. And he just didn't know what to make of it. And he would say, he says now that now he understands what he was looking at. You know, and so I, and he is, he and my kid, our kids are, they are my best advisors and supporters really now. And he would have been then too, if we both, but I don't think that I love Westport meeting. And people, I think that we received more support than most. But I think it's still really hard for friends to know what to do to support not just the person with the leading, but their partners and their families too. And if you're afraid to call anybody a minister then you're really afraid to call anybody a minister's spouse. And there just is not, we don't have any mechanisms for that. Right. And so then we don't have any, if this, if, if I, if this was more an ongoing dialogue with people, when this first started happening to me, we would have, said, oh, that's what this is, and this is what we need, you know, I I think a lot sooner than we did. Mm. And I don't blame that on friends. I think it's just that it just is. It's just the ongoing tension that we have that, you know, I love this thing that we're all ministers, but the terror and what to do with people who have this experience of being so strongly called completely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I think we have to figure that out. Because I've had other, like, other nudges where they were not this big thing. You know, like, the after 9-11, for weeks on end, at worship, I would have this picture come in, into my being of handing over all these loaves of challah um, to um, the people at the mosque in New Bedford. And I'd never met them, and I didn't even know where they met, but I would have this. And that seemed like such a crazy thing to do, and I had no idea how to do it or even where to find them. It took me a couple of months before I did it, called him up. The imam had no idea what to make of it either, but he said, sure, come over. And and I handed over all these loaves of warm bread. Um, his wife and I hugged. I said hello to the children. It was right after service. And I left, and um, nothing ever came of that mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. But I was released from it. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is like the experience of like, okay, so you, you follow this even though it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of things I think happen to all of us or are available to us all of the time. But they're different from this knowing that I have with huge humility. <laughs> that I'm just called to be a minister of God. Mm-hmm. Think of the stories of early friends where they, they talk about how folks took up the plow, were heading to the field, felt the call, left the plow standing in the field, (laughs) walked away, you know, it's almost, Mm -hmm. and and may or may not have told their family. Mm -hmm. And maybe the modern equivalent is walking down the walkway of the house to get the mail, the mailbox, and and realizing that, that there's a call. And I don't think... I don't think people just hit the road, but we don't know what to do as friends, I think, with people who have such a complete call. And I wonder if there's also some gendered stuff in there that mm-hmm. it's it's because you're also a mom, mm-hmm. or you were a mom, you mm-hmm. still are a mom. Mm-hmm. It might mean that the kinds of things that moms do mm-hmm. scare quotes, mm-hmm. uh, you might not be doing, mm-hmm. or you might ask for help from your partner or from a mm-hmm. friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, there, those things were definitely a factor. You know, my kids will definitely say, that they fully support me and they get it. and But they all would also tell you it would have been okay to have had more of me. Mm-hmm. I think 
one of the other things that I've always been aware of is that my my understanding of what's my work to do looks a lot like mom. Mm-hmm. I really are a gardener. And there are a lot of a lot of bridges between the two, you know, that I relate back and forth all the time. Some of most of the trees in my yard are named after kids that have come through the youth programs. <laughs> and so my, you know, the model of the traveling minister who preaches or gives these very vocal public testimony is not what my understanding of my work is. Mm. It's being present to people and listening to them so that they can hear within and building safe communities because I believe that in those communities you your heart opens and you find God and and you find unconditional love which brings you back to God and you know I love doing small group work and but there are all these things where even you know, we've had people who have wanted to come and videotape, like, scopy meditations I do and things, and I say no, because it shifts what's happening in there. Right. And so what I do is very much... what probably a lot of people would say is traditionally women's work. Mm -hmm. It's just so clear to me that it's what's my work to do that I really don't get into it a whole lot. Mm -hmm. It does make it difficult when people are naming ministries. And I kind of go, the picture's bigger than that and then just to clarify what i hear when you say people are naming ministries that they're naming these kind of charismatic public mm-hmm. outfacing ministries which is different than the building of safe space and the cultivation of spiritual people um, yeah and i i don't think it's not at all like i wanted you know, have a capital M in front of my name. I think what it helps me to know is that at its essence, I think my understanding of ministry is that it is whatever you do or how you are that lets the spirit enter Mm. 
and helps people be in that place. And so then it becomes much bigger than just focal ministry. I'm connecting it to the beginning of the conversation where you were saying that one of the things that was so compelling to you about friends was this seeking to turn their whole life over, to Mm -hmm. live an intentional Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And that does seem much bigger than just vocal ministry Mm -hmm. because that happens an hour uh, or maybe two. Mm -hmm. There's a Wednesday night meeting for worship or something, Mm -hmm. you know, a couple hours a week, but, or, and Mm -hmm. then there's the rest of our life. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 And so I think, you know, I'm so aware that there's ministry in the grocery store line, in the waiting room of medical places, at the bus stop. I mean, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the sense of being able to help provide a connection that brings that light into the other person's day even a bit. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, there that is. And that that is so much the essence of friends that you know, I think that that is as much why I stick around, as you say. <laughs> yeah. When I asked her the question, if she would share her experience of leadings and nudges, I did not expect with such clarity and power the story of her call that she told. What what's you you may hear as you l- listen to it, but or and was doubly evident in the room as she told it was that the the weight of the call and the power of it is, is as present today as it was however many years ago when she's sitting in the library and she hears that laughter. So that when she told me that story and you can hear me go, oh, it was just because it, it, it was so powerful and, and powerfully conveyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the word that, keeps coming up is is um uh witness yeah that what she's doing is witnessing to god's motion in her life right she's telling you the truth of a story um and as a result of her sharing the truth of that story you feel some measure of the fullness of that power that she experiences maybe even still daily um and it it just keeps going back to how important it is for us to to share these stories with one another um 
And I think, you know, one of the things that is interesting about that story to me is that while it was a deeply personal experience kind of, um, you know, in wherever she was, the library or something. Right. Um, that wasn't the end of it because then it, she got looped through all these story with these other people's stories and narratives and the discernment. Um, while not maybe initially a clearness committee for discernment of the call of God's laughter and the request, when are you coming to work for me? There was a way in which she was practicing communal discernment, going through work with the various people in her lives that were connected to friends at that time. Um, and the, the ways in which ordering happens, right? The, the sense of gospel order or right order in which you have to sometimes set some things aside to have other things have space. So she didn't immediately um, know that, have a positive entry into her life. This is what I'll do with all my hours. But it was became clear it was no, didn't make sense to be involved in early childhood ed anymore. Right. It, it, because to become certified and to take a job as a teacher, even though you have the summers off, did not have enough flexibility to be able to order her life so that she had space in order to listen and respond. And that we've heard that over and over again in these interviews and just clearly in the, the last one that we put up with Angela Hopkins, where she really talks about the importance of space for the work of spiritual discernment and responsiveness. Mm -hmm. I really resonated with the, when she said it took her two weeks to tell someone and she told two people in her life, she told Kevin Lee who, and I'll bracket that off and we can talk about his response, but she told her husband, buddy. And one of his reactions, um, after being sort of saying this was not our plan. I mean, I think that's a lot of people's reaction at a call. This was not my plan. Um, was this understanding that their marriage was a triangle. It was Gretchen, buddy and God in this relationship. And, and that was not in the original plan. Yeah. I found that, I mean, personally really interesting. Um, in the sense that like you and I wouldn't be married if, unless that had been the deal. Right. There's right. no way our marriage would have survived or that we would even want it to, I think, if it weren't for the fact that we both are clear that our vocational service comes first and that our marriage is a ministry underneath that broader set of service. Right. Right. And I, that's why I really resonated with that. We had the benefit of coming together after both, hearing a very clear sense of call put on our lives such that when we were doing the discernment. And you mean as individuals? As individuals. I yes, yes, yes. And so that when we were doing the discernment and clearness for marriage, we could articulate to each other and, and in the face of the clearness committee that there was a different kind of ordering, that God was at the top and then our marriage came underneath it. Yeah. Um, and do you remember, I mean, I remember there being there uh i haven't thought about this in a while but on the um we i don't know we found some generic language for um the certificate right the marriage certificate and we were clear that in integrity we couldn't leave on there um that we'll be married till death do us part correct because we said well look if we if we 
record friends in ministry or acknowledge or endorse ministry, but we don't do that permanently because the gifts might be rescinded. How in the heck can we know that we'll be married forever? What if that's rescinded? Right, right. If marriage is a ministry and we don't know how long ministries are on you, why, why would we say something forever that we don't? And it was like, it was a totally weird thing because I think when most people are getting married, they're like, oh yeah, we'll do this forever. And we were really- They all, they all talk like they that. They do, definitely. Everyone does. That's, that's how I talk when I'm very excited about marriage. You have rarely hear me talk that way. Um, and so um, I, I think I think that like, you know, there, there's a weirdness there. And I don't know if you remember, but the, the committee was like, wait, so you're not sure about this marriage? Right. And no, like, I no, 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 it's, we're, we're pretty good. But we're also really clear that out of integrity, how could we say this? Right. Right, because the leading might be laid down. Right, um, and I think it's an unusual way to think about it. But I, but I, I mean, I certainly have benefited from it, and I, it sounds to me as if, in, in a significant way, um, Gretchen and Buddy's family has kind of come under the weight of that eventually too. It sounds like it, yeah. And it really sounds like she was able to. We talked about making the space, but she got the support of her broader community by providing her with the equivalent of her tent making jobs or her tailoring in the case of John Woolman, the piecework that she could do that she could then put down at a moment's notice or it was just short term so that she could continue to be open and responsive. Right. And that she kept wrestling with it, right? That she kept saying, I don't really know what's going on here. Um, right? She tried to go to Andover Newton to see if maybe she should do an MDiv and took a class on uh, religious ed, but then was like, nah, I don't need an MDiv, but I tried it. And so she's continually wrestling. Right. She, she didn't, she realized she didn't need the MDiv, but she also realized that there was, that that class was very powerful and that the something about being there was like, oh, I'm in the right place. Yeah, and it's interesting because the, she that that feeling of rightness piece comes up again for Gretchen because she says, um, you know, she's she's talking about the fact that she feels like she's called to public ministry, but that the public ministry she's called to isn't quote the kind of the normal vocal ministry that's associated with the traveling ministry. That's right. And she does. She says, I don't need that big M in front of my name, um, but that it might have been useful to know what it was that was going on. And what she says is it might have been useful to her to know what was going on, because if she had known what was going on, she could have said, ah, so this is what this is. And so this is what I might need. Mm-hmm. And I think that really is a huge, powerful piece of the story to kind of fold over and bookmark that the naming of rising gifts of ministry is less important. The name of the naming gifts of ministry is less important then the potential consequences of it so that we can better equip each other and support people in becoming able to more fully live into those gifts. And in the realm of supporting people, I just want to lift up what she says about what the support, the specific support that would have been useful to her would have been support of her spouse and support of her family. And that because we don't think of ministry sort of in the same way as other Christian denominations, we don't think of the minister's spouse and the minister's family needing support in the same way that someone would go take care, you know, support the pastor's family. Yeah. And I, and I think you and I in particular maybe sometimes miss that because we've been working side by side for whatever, 15 years or something. Mm. 12. 12. 
Right. But there are some folks for whom one part of the partnership is out and about and the other one is not. Right. Um, and that is, I think that is useful to keep tabs on. Right. And we've been able to construct some of that support by living in community. So we have people who in our, our house family mm-hmm. who step in. Yeah. And uh, biological family. I mean, I think with, without my family able to do some of that, we wouldn't have been able to do some things. Absolutely. So I don't know exactly what to say about this. However, it it is particular enough that I want to kind of point at it and see if you've got something. Because I do feel like Gretchen's clarity, like crystal clarity and the community's endorsement and support of her ministry at the same time as recognizing that it's not in the quote traditional model of vocal ministry or of traveling ministry is really worth noting because it's one of the examples that we have of the fact that the old models while giving us a, um, a great kind of bounty of riches are not always fully encompassing of the ways that God continues to show up. And this is one of the first times we hear a really clear call. And also it does not really look at all like what we have in our minds for what traveling vocal ministry would look like or itinerancy. I think that's right. And I agree with you. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what else to say, except that it's notable. Why? I wonder if it's because we might not do enough of recognizing and naming ministries that don't look like powerful vocal ministry. If there are listeners who listen to Lisa Graustein, I think that she talked about the ministry that she felt called to, very called, wasn't always seen by folks as, as ministry. She, that's an area where what she's doing was clearly perceived as ministry by her, but not seen by her meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And it goes along with the fact that Gretchen gives us this definition of ministry. She says, it's whatever you do or however you are that lets the spirit enter and helps other people be in that place where spirit enters. Um, there's an intentionality to it. So it isn't really that ministry is anything. Right. It's that ministry can be anything done with this kind of prayerful attention intended to allow spirit to enter. Right. Uh, and I think that may be a useful platform or launching point for kind of broader conversations of public ministry as opposed to presuming a default of uh, traveling vocal ministry, something more broadly like that. Well, if if what we're about is living into the inbreaking kingdom, the inbreaking kingdom is a lot bigger than traveling vocal ministry among the religious society of friends. Mm-hmm. It is in the grocery line or at the bus stop. And then the, te- the test there is to kind of continue to wrestle and wrestle and say, what does it look like now? What does it look like now? Right. Both individually and corporately. Like, what does it look like for you right now? But then what does it look like for us to be finding and supporting something that we don't even know exactly what it might look like? Right. Wrestle, wrestle, wrestle.
the longer I practice, the more I can flip those moments that seem like this is irritating or this isn't in my plan or whatever to, huh, what's the app? Yeah. The opportunity. What's Mm -hmm. the opening? Huh? What's, what's this? And that's a much more interesting way to be in the world. And the more you do it, the more you kind of go, Oh yeah, it is everywhere. (laughs) And, Uh-oh. It feels so much that it's what how I should live my life, but I also am so aware of so much gratitude because, you know, when you create that space for someone else, you're recreating it for yourself, too, and for we together. And so how cool is it? Two, I have this life where I'm blessed to feel so secure that I'm right where I should be. I have work that I love. I have people that so support me um so many of them and get so much back in the long term view mm-hmm. I and mean, there are people i've known for 30 years i know them. their kids are sitting on my lap how cool is that and So even even at times like this when personally we've, you know, had so many personal losses, Mm. there's still this deep sense of gratitude Mm -hmm. that it's all going on all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And just because people who are listening to this won't know, when you refer to personal losses, um, you um, lost a parent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, after a really difficult medical series, long haul, in a short period of time, and have had several dear friends and relatives died this year and I've got a sister with a couple of kinds of cancer Mm -hmm. and it's just a lot of um, personal heartache Mm -hmm. and a lot of being present to my family's heartache Mm -hmm. and uh, just enormous amounts of it this year which I'm sure are opportunities for learning as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My friend Elaine talks about another 
expletive deleted growth opportunity. Yeah. John Calvi. I quote him all the time on that one. (laughs) All the time. My mother even does. Because it's such a great phrase. It is. (laughs) And even that is a little bit of flipping. It just, Mm -hmm. it shines a different light Mm -hmm. on on it Mm -hmm. with possibility. Mm -hmm. Um. I I want to just go back part of the conversation where um, you had had this experience in the library. Mm-hmm. You had talked to some folks. Mm-hmm. Kevin Lee said, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. There's that mm-hmm. piece. And, and now you've just finished talking about the gratitude for doing work that you love for being connected mm-hmm. to people for this over this long term. As you look back, there was no roadmap, but how did you know which next step to take? That's a good question. I think... That um, there were some times that were very obvious. The realization that it was mine to say yes to coordinating the junior high program when they didn't have a coordinator. Mm which was also very unexpected, happened driving down 128 underneath a big green exit sign. And I was not expecting that one. There are other things like when all three of our kids were in college, I was working full-time hours at a couple of different part-time jobs in order to help us get these kids financially through school. And I just, fatigue-wise, just hit a wall and gave my resignation to, at that point, Youth Programs Committee saying I can't do this anymore. And they refused to take it. And that's when Karen Sanchez-Eppler and Edward Baker worked and created the position at New England Yearly Meeting that I have and said, no, we need to make this work. And that was just a stunning (laughs) of them saying, no, this is wrong, that there's been this high school program for so long and we should have done this a long, long time ago Um, that, you know, the junior high and the elementary program for so many years was just, just, were stipended. And, and they said, no, this is a, this is an error we need to fix. And, I'd written that letter in December and my 
position was approved at yearly meeting in August for Quakers. That's like a hundred yard dash. <laughs> <laughs> and stuff just comes up, you know, like this past year, they've had this great new thing happen where Beth Kalea heard that Joy Duncan, uh, who works like three hours a week for Illinois Yearly Meeting, doing their youth ministry work, was looking to mentor with someone. And Beth hooked Joy and I up, and Joy got a grant and from the Lyman Fund, and she's been flying out from Chicago to staff junior high retreats this year, and we're learning so much from her and and vice versa. And and there was some concern when that first came up of like, oh, it's going to just be more work for you. You shouldn't do that. You know, my beloved support and oversight committee that I love to pieces, and they're so good for me. And none of us knew how extraordinary it would be to have joy. But I feel very lucky to have had, very blessed to have so many people around who can help me figure that out. You know, and that's because of how, where I work and what I do. But how can we help people who are way newer on that path get that same kind of support and listening. In really long-time relationships. You know, I have a lot of young friends who, young adult friends, who reach out to me to run things by me. So much of it is because of they trust. I know the essence of them over all these years, and and I trust their sincerity. Mm-hmm. And so I can take them really seriously. That if this is something they're really thinking about, this isn't like this wacky thing, mm-hmm. and. They know that if it sounds wacky, I'm going to say, I think you should wait on that. (laughs) And that's relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is amazing that those young adults have the longevity of relationship to be able to reach out in trust. Mm -hmm. And I think I also hear you wondering if there's other ways that we can build relationships Mm -hmm. like that into Mm -hmm. how we are so that it doesn't have to just be you. Yeah. But we could do that maybe for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Very definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about your support and oversight committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, How long have you had this committee? This particular crew, bless them. (laughs) I don't even know. It's got to be at least 10 years. 
And are they all from Westport or? No, no, no. They all staff though. Yeah, it's Ann Anderson and Dave Baxter and Marion Athern. And then Kevin Lee has a role as my uh, elder. Mm-hmm. Both the Young Friends coordinator and I have somebody who kind of has some of the clinical uh, background that we can call up for guidance on things. Mm. Um, mm. So, and, and, so Lisa Graustein fills that for Nia and the Young Friends program. And so there are times when I use Lisa as well. My support and oversight committee laugh that a lot of the times they don't even have to meet or speak anymore because I've kind of internalized the, what will they say? <laughs> Which is really helpful, right? Right. There are times when people say, can you do, and I will think, I can see Andrew Anderson going, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I will go, no, I don't think so. And here I'm going, no. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's like you have a discernment machine. I mean, they're not a machine, yeah. but... No, very know. definitely. And they would laugh. They would say, yeah, but it totally works. Yeah, and I do... I am a really firm believer in we can't do this by ourselves mm. faithfully. It's too easy for us to fool ourselves. Mm. You know, denial is not a river in Egypt that... That um, we really have, we need each other. And we need each other in ways that are not always easy. Mm-hmm. My crew will tell you, there are times when I'm like, I am not happy about this. And they will laugh and say, we know. <laughs> But I trust that process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot here, I think, that needs us other than to say how, how sweet it is that community has showed up in this story and, and trust. I think community and trust both. Maybe trust is an ingredient in community too. But that that seems like a, a big important part of this last section. And in the, the small bit that comes after this, it really is about saying, look, we're not going to get this all right. We don't all know what's going on. The, the things we've learned aren't true for all time. I'm, 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 because I'm some great prophet. It's just, we need to be able to talk to one another connect more deeply to share the wisdom that we've learned, the mistakes we've made, and so we can be there for one another. Right. She lifts up the primacy of relationships in in relating her story and also in the observation that she makes that we can't do this work without each other mm-hmm. in the good parts and the hard parts and yeah. that 
there's almost a, I think this is in the section that follows this one, but uh, an injunction for those folks who have been at this for some time that it is important to be sharing stories, talking about the messes, mentoring people who are coming up in this work and in the world. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. There's not, it, it pretty much speaks for itself. I think what we can take away as, as listeners and those folks who are listening who are, have been doing this work for some time is her invitation to share our stories more broadly. And that's part of why we do this. And, and I, I guess maybe my hope is that in sharing these stories, it, it's then an invitation to people who listen to share their story. And I think that that's one of the hard things about friends is that, you know, we, we are so much both about this listening to that of God within and following our light, but that emphasis on the fellowship mm. that holds us all towards the center, it doesn't get talked about as much. Mm. Well, I will tell you that anecdotally, if I was doing research, these conversations point to the importance of that over and over again. Huh, cool. That 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 it is with the prayerful and pro- prophetic and pragmatic and surprising support of other people that ministry comes into the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or, or it seems in our context, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. other denominations do it differently, mm-hmm. but there's a real, and, and so I go back to the, how can we help people who are newer mm-hmm. To have that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas? Well, I'll tell you, my biggest response when I feel like there's somebody with a new leading that really is on to something. Yeah. So I say, do you have a do you have a support committee? Do you have a clearness committee? Who can you get a hold of to help you do this? Mm-hmm. That is my first response. I do also think that those of us who have been doing, who have been on this road longer, (laughs) really have to keep making ourselves more available. Mm -hmm. That this mentoring, that we need to get over ourselves about Um, both admitting where the mistakes and the messes have been, as well as 
that it's okay to share the wisdom and the insights we have, you know, that that's wisdom and insights and not pride. Right. And so, because this stuff is not, you can't, it's so intuitive and yet you so need help figuring out what it is. And there's, you know, this thing of when you're coming to work for me, but then how does that all play out, right? right? And and so how what that looks like for people and how they do that and the specifics of the mom who needs to be able to worship or write and the, you know, the 23-year-old that needs to be taken seriously and the 70-year-old who didn't really expect this at their t- this time in their life, you know. And I, I think just like... I'm always floored by the number of young people who have never had anybody really seriously talk to them about how they center in worship and what's hard or about how they discern whether or not to give a message and how many times their response when I start those conversations is, wow, nobody's ever talked about this before. Hmm. And, and so we have a very large basket of things that we need to be willing to talk about, however, uneloquently mm-hmm. or imperfectly it comes out. So I want to really thank Gretchen Baker-Smith so much for having this conversation. And for approving of our lack of elegance. It was really a joy to sit down with her. We want to give thanks across all of this project to Fresh Pond Monthly Meeting and to of our committees of support, care, and accountability. This work is made possible by the financial support of the Legacy Gift Fund of New England Yearly Meeting, Obadiah Brown Benevolent Fund, and Salem Quarterly Meeting. We also want to give thanks to Blue Dot Sessions and John Watts for their royalty-free music that we use on the show. Lots of thanks for that work. You can listen to On Carrying a Concern on iTunes, Google Play, or directly on our website, which is ocacshow.org. On OCACshow.org, you can find all the transcripts of the shows, as well as additional resources and things that were referenced, and uh, reflection questions that you can use either for yourself or in small groups if you're doing that. And if you're using those reflection questions and want to leave us feedback about how they may or may not 
and maybe they're inelegant uh, working for you, leave us feedback uh, either through the website or on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you one way or the other and hope that things are well in your world. Until we connect again, I'm Khaled Keefe Perry. And I'm Christina Keefe Perry. <laughs>